Author Malcolm Gladwell recently gave an interesting talk highlighting the difference between incompetence and overconfidence and how pointing out that overconfidence is actually much worse. Incompetence is annoying, but less frequently results in massive disaster because we tend to give incompetent people less power and influence. This is in contrast to people we deem experts. Some people truly are competent in their field, and because of this, we call them experts, and that gives them a great deal of power and influence, responsibility. But do you see how this sets up such experts for failure? Because no one's perfect, and when they do fail, often there's great fallout and great consequences. Studies show, for instance, that doctors end up harming their patients more often due to not incompetence, but overconfidence. Most doctors, I mean, generally, they know what they're doing. They are competent. But when they start to think of themselves as experts, as infallible, they're really setting themselves up for disaster. They're less likely to second-guess their own opinions or receive input from others. In general, we want confident doctors, right? We want them to, to say they know what's wrong, to know exactly what to do. But when that confidence turns into overconfidence, when disaster looms, Gladwell observes, quote, It is the overconfidence of experts that can result in spectacular mistakes. Overconfidence leads to the inability to see changes in the world around us, blinding us to new information that could help us avoid disastrous failures, end quote. He illustrates this observation with a story from the American Civil War. It was not incompetence, but overconfidence that led to the humiliating defeat of General Joe Hooker's Union Army by the Confederate Army in the Battle of Chancellorville in 1863, the Civil War. In the spring of 1863, the Union Army was not doing so well, so President Lincoln recruited Hooker as general. He was a very confident and strong leader. He immediately gained the respect and admiration of all his men. You could say he was an expert in war. He knew what he was doing. Part of his confidence was derived from information. He was the first general to use spies and analysts to get real-time information about the enemy. Well, at one point, Hooker managed to surround General Lee's army in the south on three sides. His only option was to retreat south to Richmond. But either way, Hooker had them in his grasp. In battle or in retreat, he was going to crush the South's main army. His information told him he outnumbered them two to one. So he thought in his mind, it's over. He's won. It's as good as over. He he did it. He was so confident of their impending victory that he delayed the start of fighting so that his men could rest and eat and prepare because they were going to win anyway. He said in a speech to his troops beforehand, quote, Our plan is perfect, and God Almighty could not prevent me from victory tomorrow. End quote. Well, while the northern army was resting, General Lee took his men south, giving the illusion that they were retreating, but he wasn't. He was splitting up his troops into smaller forces to launch a surprise attack on Hooker's men while they were having their final meal. As this was happening, Hooker received more information saying, hey, General Lee is not actually retreating. He's going to launch a surprise attack. But Hooker at this point chose to ignore it. He was already captured by his own confidence. Even though the information had changed, he was trapped. He thought in his mind he couldn't be wrong. His plan was perfect. Nothing could stop it. Nothing could change it. He would prevail. There's no way he could get this wrong. Well, you you know how that story is going to end. His troops ended up being surprised. They suffered a humiliating defeat. They ran away and they left all their weapons behind. It was a crushing defeat for the north. But such is the danger of overconfidence. And as the saying goes, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The more power and prestige a person has, the greater the damage when they do fall and everyone falls. And the caution here is to beware overconfidence. Beware placing too much confidence in yourself. Because when you think you can't fail, you're in reality just setting yourself up for a greater fall. And this fact is perhaps nowhere more evident than in the passage we have for today in in Mark chapter 14. Open your Bibles now to Mark 14 as you resume this chapter. And, and without exaggerating, this might be like the best example of misplaced self-confidence. 
And it comes to us famously from the Apostle Peter. You all know, everyone knows, that Peter was the one who famously denied Jesus three times right before the cross. And that was a huge fall. But what made that fall so spectacular was Peter's profound confidence and arrogance right before it. He really boasted himself up and puffed himself up. He said he would never fall. He would never deny Jesus. He would rather die first. I'm sure he had himself convinced. I mean, he was the lead disciple. He was the leader of the pack. He was the first one to confess Jesus as Messiah, as Lord. They looked to him for guidance. He was rock solid. In fact, Peter's name meant rock. So he's never going to deny Jesus. He'll never turn his back, he thought. But the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And great was Peter's fall. Mark 14 ends with Peter's threefold denial. We'll be getting there shortly. But for now, in verses 27 through 31, we see the setup. We see how he he puffs himself up to prepare for his fall. We encounter Peter's misplaced confidence in himself. Jesus warns all the disciples that very soon they're all going to fall away. But Peter refuses to believe this. He's the rock. He's not going to go anywhere. This could never happen to him. In a sense, we appreciate his zeal, but there is to be found in this text a great cautionary tale of overconfidence in self. And we need to learn ourselves to take heed lest we fall as well. Mark 14. Let's read 27 through 31, the passage we'll be looking at for this morning. Mark 14, verses 27 through 31. And Jesus said to them, verse 27, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you. I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. For the past three weeks, we've been spending some extra time studying the all-important Lord's Supper earlier from Mark 14. But now it is time to move on. And now we're getting to the point where you can literally count the hours on one hand before Jesus is arrested. I mean, this is it. Right before this, he was with his disciples in the upper room, Having that last meal together, they were sharing the last Passover, which was also the first communion meal ever. That meal started just after sunset, probably around 6 o'clock, and it lasted until just before midnight. Then it was time to leave. Where were they going? Well, back home to Bethany. That's where Jesus and the disciples were staying throughout Passion Week. If you remember, they didn't ever stay in Jerusalem. They stayed in Bethany, which was two miles outside of Jerusalem. And so the disciples thought, well, the evening's over. It's time to head home to Bethany. So they left the upper room and they went to the Mount of Olives, heading towards Bethany. Verse 26 says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They concluded their Passover meal, likely singing the Hallel, as we learned. And then they departed. They left Jerusalem, they headed east, they crossed the Kidron Valley. They started up the Mount of Olives, which is on the way to Bethany. And there Jesus was planning to stop at a little garden called Gethsemane to pray. And he had done that many times before. That wasn't wasn't the first time he was going to do that. So, so far though, nothing's out of the ordinary. They're just, they think they're going home. Now we know there's a lot more that's going to take place this night. But so far in the mind of the disciples, it's just they're heading home. And for now, verses 27 through 31, they catch Jesus and the disciples while they're on this 20 minute walk from Jerusalem to Gethsemane. And on the way, Jesus has some words for his disciples. That's where these verses fit in. Primarily, Jesus has an ominous message for them. His death is looming and he knows it. It's time that they know it too and be warned because pretty soon they're all going to be tested and they're all going to fail. Knowing this though, it's important for us to study this passage Because Jesus allowed them to stumble 
In fact, God designed for them to stumble on purpose so as to teach them an invaluable lesson. And guess what? That lesson is for us as well. What is the lesson? It centers on confidence. Beware placing confidence in yourself. For your flesh will fail you. Instead, place your confidence in the Lord, for he never will. We'll be confronted by this lesson in a powerful way in this text. And we we need to be confronted by this lesson because none of us are any different than Peter in this passage. Do you think you're too good to fail, to fall into some great sin, to stumble, to deny the Lord? You're not. And you need to realize that and take heed, watch out, be sober-minded at all times. That's something you can learn the hard way by falling yourself. Or you can learn the easy way by watching Peter fall. And let's start with the easy way. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's make our way through verses 27 through 31. Just letting this lesson unfold before us about confidence in self versus confidence in the Lord. Let's go, let's go again to verse 27. Let's start here. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now to get the sense of this, you really need to place yourself in the shoes of the disciples. They just left the upper room that last supper, which is a very special time with with Jesus, but it was also a very gloomy time. Jesus told them in that upper room, he's going to be leaving them and they can't follow. Then he told them that one of them is going to betray him. It's not what they wanted to hear. It's very depressing, discouraging news. And then right after that, they leave. And now he tells them, oh yeah, and by the way, you're all going to fall away. Not one of you, you're all going to fall away pretty soon. It's like, what? It's not, again, not what they wanted to hear. And it's also something they all refuse to believe, as we will see shortly. Now, you may be wondering, though, and we do need to clarify, what exactly does it mean for them to fall away? Is he talking like lose their salvation? Well, no, that's not what this means. The word for fall away here is scandalizo in the Greek. We get the word scandalize from. It means to cause to stumble, to trip up, to fall. It carries the basic idea of being caught in a trap. And that's what was going to happen to the disciples that very night. When they see Jesus arrested by the angry mob, they're scandalized, so to speak. They're, They're trapped by their circumstances. They stumble, they fall. Jesus places this word in the passive, which is important. It's not something they're doing willfully per se. They're not planning to fall away. It's something that, in a sense, happens to them. External factors produce temptation, and they fall into sin. They're going to lose this battle. Their faith, though, it's still real. Their faith is real. This is not a loss of salvation. They're, They're not like Judas. Even Judas didn't lose his salvation. He was not saved to begin with which he displayed by his willful unbelief. The disciples at this point, though, they they still believe in Jesus, but they will suffer from a weakness of faith. Theirs is still a little faith, and they will stumble. When they see those guards coming for Jesus, this flesh-fueled fear will overtake them, and they'll think, they're going to arrest me, they're going to kill me next. They will succumb to the temptation of their own flesh, and therefore, in order to save their own skin, they will they'll run away. They'll all run away. They will act as if Jesus is not their master and Lord. This is what it means for them to all fall away. What's more interesting, though, is that Jesus tells them not only that this will happen, but that this is supposed to happen. That's pretty mind-boggling to think about. Their fall is actually part of God's predicted plan laid out hundreds of years before. He says, you will all fall away because it is written. You see that? He says, because it's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The reference here is to Zechariah 13, verse 7. Zechariah is a heavily prophetic messianic book. It contains loads of these predictive prophecies about the first and second comings of the Messiah. In Zechariah, we also find many prophecies about the Passion Week, the the last week of Christ's life. You've got the prediction of the triumphal entry. That's from Zechariah. Mentions the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. 
You have the verse that foresees the betrayal of Jesus by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. That's in Zechariah as well. In Zechariah, you even have a prediction of the Messiah being pierced through for our transgressions. The Messiah is actually shown, as a side note, to be equal with God. He's God in the flesh. Get that from Zechariah 12.10. Well, the later chapters of Zechariah, they have like a theme where they portray God's people as a flock, a little flock of sheep that's lost because they have no shepherd. Or at least they have no good shepherd. So God promises he will step in, he will be their shepherd. He will provide for them a perfect shepherd, the Messiah, who will deliver them. Now that being the case, though, that this verse, Zechariah 13.7, it's actually bewildering. It says this, Zechariah 13.7, God says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. At first, it doesn't make sense. Why would God strike his shepherd, his associate, one who's like him? Why would God raise the sword against him, which means to kill him, and thereby scattering the sheep? Why would, why would God do that? I thought God was giving this shepherd to the people to deliver them. And back then, I imagine it would have been hard for them to, to figure that out fully, but for us, in hindsight, it, it makes perfect sense. Because we know that God's shepherd, the Messiah, had to die in order to deliver the people. He had to be struck down. He had to give his life over to death in exchange for them, that he would pay for their sins to save them. And this shepherd, he had to die alone, despised and rejected. This was his work alone. He had to die alone. You also get that in Isaiah 53, the famous passage. Verse 3 says about the Messiah, Jesus, he was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He, he was going to be rejected in the end by everyone. He died alone. Everyone left him. As Jesus was made sin, it's significant that he was truly rejected by all. And in a sense, that even includes God. In a sense, didn't God reject him as he caused his holy wrath to fall on Jesus? He was made sin him who knew no sin on our behalf. It was God's plan to strike the shepherd with death to pay for our sins. Isaiah 53 continues, verse 4, says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was smitten of God. God did this. Verse 10 says in Isaiah 53, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. God was striking down his own shepherd in love to save the sheep. Well, looking back to us, it's, it's a little more clear now. Now we know what God's plan was all about. Jesus had to die, and he had to die alone. He had to be rejected by all, one way or another. And fast forward back to Mark, Jesus knows this too. He knows that this is the plan predicted long ago. He knows the plan through prophecy. He knows he must be struck down. He knows he must be pierced through, despised, rejected, forsaken. He must die for the sins of the people. It's the only way to save the sheep. And so he knows the disciples, in this case, they're going to have to be scattered. He has to go through this, go to the cross, truly alone. However, there is a silver lining here. Because doesn't all this show you that God is in control? God's in control. From the fleeing of the disciples to the death of Jesus itself, God is in, in control. And he's using these bad things for good for his greater good these events are not tragedies outside of god's control but they're part of his perfect plan through the death of jesus the greatest evil ever god was actually redeeming 
a flock for himself. And even through the scattering of the disciples, which was a bad thing, even through their scattering, God was going to teach them to never again trust in their own flesh. A valuable lesson. Well, along these lines, God's control and Christ's trust in God's control are further displayed in verse 28. Let's, let's keep moving. Look at verse 28. He says right after that, But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This is Christ's fifth prediction of his resurrection. At least so far in Mark. He's going to die, but he's going to be raised. This is also in the passive, meaning it's being done to him. God does it. God is the agent of Christ's death, but God is also the agent of Christ's resurrection. This is also a part of God's plan, whereby he takes what men mean for evil and he transforms it into good by his sovereign power for our salvation. I mean, I'm not sure if you've picked up on this, but just the past few chapters in Mark, we've just seen passage after passage that just display God's sovereignty over all of the events surrounding the death of Christ. It's like it's all part of a a plan that Jesus is carrying out. What happens to him, it's no accident and it's not a surprise. It's like he knows everything that's going to happen because he does. Remember at the beginning of Passion Week, Jesus referenced his coming burial. He knew he was going to die and be buried and no one would anoint him. Then during the triumphal entry, we have this episode where Jesus supernaturally directs his disciples to acquire a cult for him to ride in on through divine foreknowledge. Everything is set up and waiting as planned. He just tells them what's going to happen and it all just happens. Same thing happens with the upper room. The disciples, they go to get the upper room and Jesus tells them by this foresight, here's what you're going to do. You'll find this guy carrying a water pot. Go here, go there. And it all works out. It's like it's all part of a plan. This even includes the betrayal of Jesus in the upper room. Jesus says, with foresight, one of you is going to betray me. He knows. He's not suggesting. He's not saying it might happen. He's just telling them, this is what's going to happen. And not long after that, Judas leaves to go do the deed of his own will, I might add. But nonetheless, he did what as planned. And even here in our text, Jesus even foresees how the disciples will all flee away from him. Everything he says comes true. That's because these are all part of God's plan. And Jesus knows the plan. It's a good plan. A powerful, sovereign, big, good God has planned all these things. And Jesus is trusting in that plan, knowing that God will use evil for good, for his glory. That's what the disciples need to do right now. They need to trust in God and his plan, not in themselves, not in their own planning which will fail them, they need to place their hope and their trust in the Lord who orchestrated all these things by his perfect wisdom, power, and might. Unfortunately, right now, God is not their trust. We see this evidenced by Peter in verse 29. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. i got to say, we really expect nothing less from Peter. He's brash, he's confident, he's kind of the know-it-all, quick to speak, hot-headed. And really, what do you expect him to say here? How do you respond to this? What's the right response? Like Jesus shows up to you tonight and he says, hey, tonight you're going to deny me. What do you say to that? Okay, thanks for letting me know. Like, how do you respond? I guess technically you, you could have said that Peter and the disciples should have been humbled by this prediction and prayed to the Lord with strength. And this is a very unique historical circumstance. This doesn't happen anymore. God doesn't tell us these things. But practically, you know, we get what Peter is saying here. And we can appreciate his zeal. That's true. But at the same time, his zeal is defiled. Because it's rooted from self-confidence and pride. He's trusting in himself as opposed to the Lord for his strength. His concern here, it's primarily to defend himself. He's really just trying to defend the honor of his name as a disciple. He, he would never do such a thing. Notice, he's not so quick to stick up for the other disciples. And technically, he kind of throws them under the bus. He's like, even though all those guys may fall away, but I will not. And it's very emphatic. 
He's like, Jesus, don't, don't you know me? I'm your, I'm your top guy. I'm the rock. Come on, I'm, I'm not going to deny you. He's claiming to be the one exception. Peter uses a double negative here. In English, double negative cancels each other out. But in Greek, they build on one another. He's like saying, no, never, not me. It's not going to be me. Several times we get the impression that Peter's discipleship is powered by Peter's strength. He thinks he's strong enough to do what Jesus calls on his disciples to do. But he underestimates the power of his sinful flesh and he overestimates his own will, his own ability. And as we noted before, such overconfidence can be quite dangerous. It can lead you to a greater fall. And furthermore, when you think about it, Peter, just overall, by saying this, he's way out of line. Why? Because for Peter to say this, isn't he basically calling Jesus a false prophet? I mean, we know he'd never mean that, of course, but Jesus both just predicted that Peter would deny him and then also quoted scripture to back it up. Peter's claiming to be an exception, but Jesus didn't give any exceptions. So by saying this, Peter is basically going against God's word and Christ's word. But sometimes that's where pride will take you. You find yourself unwittingly going against God and his word. Well, as the saying goes, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. And Peter claimed extraordinary self-confidence. He's going to be met with an extraordinary self-humiliation. And so what does Jesus say to him in verse 30? Well, look there. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows, crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. This is a setup for Peter's famous threefold denial that we're all familiar with. The reference to the rooster crowing is a reference to the third night watch. We learned this back in Mark 13:35 that the night hours were split into four watches. Evening ended at 9, midnight ending at 12. The rooster crowing, that's ending at 3 a.m. And then morning ends at 6 a.m. So when Jesus says this, it's, it's about midnight. And he's basically telling Peter that, hey, in the next three hours, not only are you going to fall away, but you're going to deny me three times. We're less than three hours away. And lo and behold, by the end of the chapter, just after Gethsemane, as the trial begins, it happens. He denies him three times. That's an event. There's not too many, but that's one event that's recorded by all four Gospels, the denial of Peter. For Peter, it's like, ouch. His humiliating fall was captured on camera by four different angles. But I'd have to say that Peter wouldn't have it any other way. Because through his denial and his restoration, he knows that God was teaching him an invaluable lesson of discipleship. And he knows God's going to teach us, God can teach us that lesson too through him. In fact, I think we have that pointed out by Peter himself in verse 30. Did you notice a little detail where Jesus mentioned, you'll deny me before the rooster crows twice? Did you notice how it says twice? In the other Gospels, it just says, before the rooster crows. It's not a contradiction, it's just in Mark we have the added detail. It's actually twice. It makes you wonder, where's that little detail come from? Well, most likely from Peter himself. Do you remember, Peter is the apostle who sits behind Mark's gospel. Mark is in Rome with Peter, drawing on Peter for much of his source material in, in this gospel. And so in this account, it looks like we have just a little little special touch from Peter. He was there. I mean, he was the guy. And he remembers this all too well. And he's giving Mark all the details. But Mark, Peter, rather, is happy to have this recorded, I would believe, because he knows that we all need to learn from his threefold fall. Speaking of which, Jesus said Peter would deny him not just once, but three times. You ever think about that? Why, why three times? I mean, once would be bad enough. So why, why a threefold denial? Why three times? I don't know for sure, but I think it's probably because Peter claimed he never would deny Jesus three times. The first time was in verse 29. We already saw that. 
And he says it again in verse 31. Again, he denies that he would ever do such a thing in verse 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Now he ups the ante and he says, even in the threat of death, I'm not going to deny you. I'm the rock. Come on, don't you know me? Again, he's being emphatic. Again, he's placing confidence in himself. And again, we know he's, he's going to fall. But there was a third time that Peter said he would not deny the Lord. It's not found in Mark, but it's found in Luke and John. They record the parallel. Luke 22 tells us the most. It actually takes us back to the upper room. Happened before. Well, they're still in the upper room during that last supper. And at some point during that last meal, this is unbelievable, the disciples get into an argument. And do you remember what they were arguing about? Which one of them was the greatest? So you can already see pride and self-concern. It's still running around in their hearts. They're not yet spiritually mature. They need to be matured. Sometimes to be matured, you need to be tested and tried. And Jesus has a special test in mind for their little leader, Peter. Listen to this, Luke 22, verse 31. Just listen along, Luke 22, 31. In that upper room, he says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's a pretty interesting passage, only in Luke, isn't it? It's another instance of Christ's foresight. Jesus knew that Peter's trial would come in the form of satanic temptation that very night. We get some information that apparently behind the scenes, like in the book of Job, Satan approached God and demanded permission to test and attempt Peter. Satan surely believed that Peter was a phony disciple, just like Judas, and he wants to test him to show that he's a phony, that he will deny him. What's more amazing is that God gave him the green light. God said, okay. As a side note, though, the Bible consistently portrays Satan not as sovereign, but on God's leash. Nonetheless, in this instance, God allowed Peter to be satanically tempted. God allowed Peter to stumble. It was still his doing, but God allowed it to happen. And at the same time, though, his faith would not fail. Peter was not like Judas. He was not false. His faith was weak, but it was real. And Jesus prayed for his strength. And that's what Peter needed to learn to count on, the Lord's strength, not his own. Peter would stumble, but he would be restored. And through that whole trial, he would be made stronger, much stronger. And it is from that new strength that he could then finally lead the disciples, the rest, as he needed to, with strength that comes from the Lord, not himself. Peter is going to learn this lesson later on the hard way. But for now, he says this. Back in Luke, he says, this is still in the upper room, Luke 22:33. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready both to go to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. So there, actually, there's the third time that Peter claimed he would never deny the Lord. Technically, that's the first time. Happened in the upper room. But isn't that amazing? On two occasions, that final night, Jesus warned Peter, that you're going to deny me three times. And Peter didn't listen, just kept insisting it's never going to happen at least three times himself. You might find his persistence noble, but his unwillingness to submit to the Lord is not noble. He was blinded by overconfidence, and this led to his fall. Part of us understands his zeal, but at the same time, the root is Peter's pride and confidence in self. So this had to be rooted out. His pride had to be just ripped out. He had to die to self once and for all. And for Peter, at this point, he had to go the hard way. He had to be tried and tested 
He had to be humbled by his sin. But through this, the Lord was actually preparing Peter for greater service later on. This lesson, though, is not just for Peter. It's also for all of the 11 disciples. Remember back in Mark 14, remember how verse 31 ends? It says, and they were all saying the same thing also. So he wasn't the only one. Now, Peter boasts the loudest, so he will be humbled the most. He will fall the greatest, but they all fell. They all were saying the same thing, and they all fell. It just goes to show anyone, even those close to Jesus, they can stumble. They can fall if they do not watch out. Do you realize that that applies to you as well? Do you realize that you can fall too? Granted, the historical circumstances are are totally different. This was a very specific thing. Fulfilling prophecy only applies to them. But in general, can't we also deny Jesus with our words, our actions, our sins? Is it still possible for Christians to retain their faith, but still stumble in such a way that dishonors the Lord and in effect is like denying his name? Yeah, happens all the time. There have been many who let down their guard, fell into serious sin, and in effect, it's like they're denying the master who bought them. All Christians are susceptible to this. Therefore, all need to learn this lesson from from Peter. In this regard, I want to suggest to you three applications, just reflecting on what happened to Peter, and we know how that story ends. And three applications. So you can avoid falling like Peter. You can learn from his mistakes. I want you to learn the easy way. Learning from Peter's fall. Three applications. It's really simple, as you'll see. Number one, be humble. Number one, you have to be humble. It starts with humility. The root of Peter's fall was pride. His spiritual estimation of himself was too high. He thought he could handle this. He thought he was good enough. He thought he was spiritually mature enough. So he let his guard down and he fell into the one sin he vehemently said he would never fall into. But you know what? That happens all the time. You say to yourself, yeah, I'm never going to fall into that cliff. It's really far away and I'm over here. I'm a capable hiker. I'm safe. Like, I'm good to go. But something is drawing you to the cliff. You just want to look over. You want to peek inside. You want to see what's down there. You're curious. So you get a little closer. But you say to yourself, like, I'm safe. It's not like I'm going to fall in still. I'm still pretty far away. Like, I can handle this. You get a little closer and a little closer. You're still confident in your footing. Soon, you're right at the cliff's edge. You're peering down. You say to yourself, see, I told you I could do it. I mean, I'm, I'm fine. I'm still safe. Not like I'm going to fall in. I just wanted to look what's inside. And then that very moment, a little breeze comes along. It's just strong enough to knock you over, and you fall down the cliff. That's how it always happens. It happens all the time, and it starts with pride. Just that very thought where you say, I'm safe. That could never happen to me. I can handle this by myself. That very thought is spiritual pride. And if that's your thought, you've already lost in your heart. You've already lost the battle in your heart. Let me give you a test. When you read this passage about Peter, either now or in the past, you've ever said to yourself, you know, how, could, how could Peter do this? How could Peter deny the Lord? I would never do that. I could, I could never do that. Do you realize, ironically, if you say that or think that, you are Peter? Like, that, that's him. You are literally doing what he did. Or how about this? You hear about, hear about a friend of yours, and they're caught in some serious sin. And you say to yourself, wow, how could they do that? I can't believe they would do that. I, I know I would never do that. I could never do that. I mean, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I, I'm not going to do that. Same thing. If you've ever had those thoughts, you are no different than Peter. And either way, you need to recognize that inside we're all the same. We're all the same. We all have the same fallen, depraved hearts. You need to realize your heart is capable of any sin. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? It's what the Bible teaches about our own heart's depravity. You have to believe that your sinful heart will betray you given the chance. 
Paul himself confessed in Romans 7. He said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Even as believers, we have the spirit. We want to do good. We have a new direction, but we still have that sinful flesh evil. It's present within us. It wants to take you down. It wants to sin. You have a part of you that wants to sin. Your first step in overcoming this is then humility. Don't overestimate your own strength. Don't think you have it under control on your own because you don't. Your enemy is strong and persistent. You must be spiritually humble. You need to humble yourself over your sin or else your sin will humble you. That's what happened to Peter. He learned the hard way, but he did learn. And he was humbled and God used him. And that's why later in life, near the end of his life, he writes this in 1 Peter. Why do you think he wrote this in 1 Peter 5? He said, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Where do you think he learned that lesson? He was humbled by the mighty hand of God. And he's telling you, learn the easy way. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Recognize and confess your own internal weakness. The first step is to be humble. Then you'll be able to, number two, trust in the Lord. Truly trust in the Lord for your strength. Trust in the Lord for your strength. You need strength and power to fight sin. You do. We all do. You don't have it on your own. You don't have that strength on your own. You cannot conquer all the sin and the temptation in your life on your own. The humble person recognizes this and therefore they they seek the Lord for his strength. God has the power. I mean, hey, we saw in our passage, this is a good, mighty, sovereign God who's able to orchestrate all these things. He, he has the power. And God did so for Peter and the disciples. He wanted them to learn, you can't even follow Jesus on your own strength. You need to rely on the Lord for all things. And that applies to us as well. Practically, what does it look like to express that trust in the Lord, to seek him for power? What's that Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You need to access God's power for your Christian life. And you do that by walking according to the Spirit that he gave to you. And practically speaking, the Bible teaches that God channels his power and his grace to you through these things we might call the spiritual disciplines. That's how you walk by the Spirit. That's how God's Spirit controls you. These aren't merely chores. These aren't things we do to add to merit. This is how we let the Spirit guide and control us. Reading his word, meditating on it, memorizing it, fellowship, praying, giving, serving, singing worship songs, the Lord's Supper. The list goes on. These are all the God-given means of our strength and growth. This is how your tree is watered. So pursue God through these means. He will strengthen your walk. This is how he says he will do it. But if you get spiritually lazy, if you detach yourself from God, his word, prayer, and so forth, if you merely rely on past victories, if you're not daily drawing on God, you're going to wither up. You will not be watered. Like a tree that gets withered up, you'll become brittle. And then it will take just the slightest of temptations for you to fall. That's how it happens every time. You need to constantly turn to the Lord for his strength through these spiritual disciplines. That's how God channels his grace and power to us to do this. Trust in the Lord for strength. Finally, number three, keep watch. Number three, keep watch. Everyone thinks they're the exception. Everyone, at one point. You think you're the exception. You think, I'm not going to fall into that sin. I'm not going to deny the Lord. You let your guard down and it happens. That's why God calls you over and over and over again in Scripture just to watch out. Be on guard all the time. At all times, your spiritual radar must be up looking out for sin. Your sin, your indwelling sin, it's a sneaky and persistent enemy waiting that one moment. You let your guard down. So don't ever let your guard down. 
It's no coincidence that right after this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what is Christ's main admonition to Peter, James, and John? He says, keep watch. Just keep watch. And he wasn't talking about for Roman guards. This was a spiritual command. In fact, listen to Mark 14, verse 37. You can probably look there yourself. Mark 14, 37. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, he said, Simon. He doesn't call him by the name Peter Rock. He calls him by Simon, his old name. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. That brings it all together, doesn't it? You don't have the power in yourself to do anything of the Christian life from the beginning to the middle to the end. And your enemy is persistent. So you need to trust the Lord for his power and you need to seek him through prayer and you need to keep watch. Be sober-minded, alert at all times for sin, that you may fight it off through the Lord's strength. Again, Peter learned the hard way, but he learned. And listen again to what he writes. The end of his life, 1 Peter chapter 5, right after all that business about being humble, he says this. Listen to this, 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. Once again, where do you think he learned that lesson? Because he was a snack one time for Satan prowling around. Because he was not alert. He was not on guard. He was not firm in his faith. And so he fell. Understand, this is a call to guard against the kind of sin that gets us the most. It's one, not of intention, but of just weakness, spiritual apathy. Now, I would say most mature believers, you don't plan on sinning. It's not like you're premeditating some great sin. I hope not. But at the same time, maybe you're not relying on the Lord as much as you should. You're not keeping watch. You're not alert. You're not on guard. So sin sneaks up and bites you on the heel and you fall down. That's usually how it happens. This is why you must take heed lest you fall. You've got to keep watch. You have to be alert, constantly mindful of even your own indwelling sin and the temptation around you. It's not, it's not complicated, but you must persist. Be humble, trust in the Lord, and keep watch. Well, now what, as a final thought, what do you do if you've already fallen? There may be some here, you've, you've learned this lesson the hard way. If this is you, I want to leave you with a word of encouragement. Of encouragement. Because, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, haven't we all fallen in one way or another? Yeah, we've all fallen in one way or another, any sin, right? But thankfully, the good news is that the Lord is quick and ready to restore you and still use you. Remember back in verse 28? We actually skipped a little part in verse 28. He said, after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. The mention of Galilee, that's, you know, that's where they're all from, the 11 disciples. Judas was not from Galilee, he's from the south. But the other 11, plus Jesus, they're all from Galilee. That's where he called them the first time. That's where they became his disciples. This, this, this verse, though, it's really a note of hope. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows at the cross, they're all going to scatter his 11 his own they're gonna they're gonna leave him but even knowing this he plans in advance of restoring them he's like i'm gonna after i'm raised after you run away i'm gonna bring you back i will gather you to me again at galilee in fact not only gather them he will recommission them for greater service you know the great commission matthew 28 where that take place in galilee after the resurrection. They had all fallen, all of them. He restored them and he commissioned them for even greater service now that they were tested. But this just even goes to show that even the fallen can be restored and still used by God. In fact, when someone falls and they're truly humbled, after they're restored through repentance, God 
he can use them even more. Because remember, he's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He uses the humble more than anyone else. So if you've fallen and you restore, you can be used even more. So be encouraged. God is ready to restore you. Three times, Peter said he would never deny the Lord. And then right after that, what happened? Three times, he denied the Lord. But in Galilee, Jesus restored Peter. How many times? Three times. Maybe in the past you've fallen into some great sin. You made foolish choices. Sin snuck up on you. You fell hard. But despite your failures, just hold on to Jesus. Don't, whatever you do, don't walk away like Judas. But just seek the Lord. He's not surprised by your fall. He wants you to repent and to turn back to him and be restored. He wants you to meet him in Galilee, so to speak, by faith, confessing your sin, your weakness, and crying out. He'll restore you as you turn from your sin. So don't stay down. Don't wallow in your sin, your failure, your denials. Turn to him. What marks a real disciple is not the absence of failure. Peter and the rest prove that. None of us have perfect faith. We've all stumbled in many ways, haven't we? But what marks a real disciple is that they always come back. They return to Jesus. They don't stand their sin. They don't stay down. And none of this, of course, is to excuse our sin. But their sin, their failures break them, humble them, and they turn back. And Christ is ready to restore. Just make sure this is you. No matter what happens without excusing your sin, just go to Jesus all the days of your life. And as you approach him with humility, faith, and trust, he'll make you truly fit to serve him all the days of your life. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we we thank you that you are our gracious Lord, that you're gracious with us because we are fallen. Even after salvation, even after all you've done for us in Christ, you've given us new life, you've forgiven us of all our sins, you've justified us, you've given us your spirit. Here we are, we're we're still sinners before you. We've still sinned in many ways. We still have the indwelling sin and the flesh to fight against. Until we're glorified, sin is an ever-present reality in our lives that we're called to fight against. And Lord, none of us are any different than your servant Peter. One way or another, great or small, we've fallen into sin and thereby, in effect, denied our Lord. But we just first have to thank you for being gracious. You know our frame. You know our weakness. You know we're dust. You know we're nothing special. Help us to recognize this. That's, that's the beginning, the beginning of turning and being used by you simply to recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing on our own. That's what got us into trouble in the first place. We need Christ in more ways than one to be our Savior and to be our our power. And through the Spirit, you've already given us the power source. We have the Spirit. I pray we take these calls seriously. We learn from Peter that the easy way to be humble, to trust in you, to seek you out, and to watch out. Keep us aware at all times. Prevent any of us from that spiritual slumber where we are not watching out for sin. It can so easily sneak up. We need to be vigilant at all times. By this, I know you will purify us, your people, even sometimes when we fall as we repent and you restore us. Purify us again and and make us stronger. Our desire is to please you in all respects. And we know as we are strengthened in Christ, as we depend on him, we will do so. So help us in this. And may all of our compasses be redirected towards Christ, true north, once again this morning. It is in your name we pray. Amen.